Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. Evening everyone. My name is Cornell. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, I'm not a pastor. I'm a member. Um, And during the day I consult for Deloitte here in Johannesburg, which is always exciting. I'm married to the beautiful Nanya, who's sitting over there. Hey, Boki. <laughs> we did the Soweto half marathon today. It was tough. It was really tough. Running in Joburg is different to running at the ocean, right? It's just, it's so much harder. Carla actually blessed me so much with the story about her running past a Rasta guy and trying to minister to him mid-race. And I'm listening to this. I was just like trying to survive. <laughs> like that thing is so, that race is so uphill. So if I, if I uh, look a bit faint tonight, please excuse me. Um, it's probably that. Okay, thank you. That's good. Um, so let's pray. Father, we just thank you for tonight. We thank you that you are here, Holy Spirit. We thank you that you are, have such a desire to speak to us, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, that you are the good shepherd who leads us as your sheep. And tonight, collectively, we just want to come and say thank you, and we open our hearts to you. We pray that you will make us good soil to receive your word. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you will speak to us individually tonight, Lord. I know that I've prepared a sermon, but I also know, God, that that you know what's happening in every one of our hearts. And I just pray that, that you'll speak to us the words, Lord, that you want to speak Um, tonight. We honor you, and we just say, Lord, you are our desire, our king, um, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, the word that I'm sharing tonight actually got birthed about, was about a month ago when I was in Ukraine. Um, I had the opportunity to go there on a short-term mission trip. It was more like a scouting mission, and me and two pastors from Stellenbosch and a guy from Paul went around the country, and we traveled with a man named Johnny Bell. Now, Johnny Bell and his wife, Delesti, um, just after the fall of the Soviet Union, they felt called by God to go over there and to, uh, to start a Bible school in, in Kiev, which is the capital. So they had pharmacy businesses here, which they sold, and they packed up shop, and they went over there, and they started this Bible school. And for 26 years, they ministered in Ukraine, and people from all over Ukraine came um, to Kiev to get trained up as pastors and church planters who then went out and planted multiple churches across the country. And Johnny also came back to South Africa and connected um, churches here with pastors there to offer them financial support because often the congregations there couldn't uh, financially support their pastors, so they needed needed the help. So um, on this trip, uh, Johnny's getting older now. He's like 81. He's still, he traveled with us. He climbed all the stairs, rode all the trains. He's still so young in spirit. I'm going to be like that when I'm 81. Um, but he feels that it's time to start handing over some of these relationships which he's built up over the years with, with the pastors. So um, part of that to the Shofar churches. So we went over with that, to, with that vision to meet some of the pastors there and to ask God who it is that we should connect with um, going forward. So we traveled around and we met um, amazing men and women of God um, who are ministering in Ukraine. But one meeting had a specific impact or a big impact on me, and that's when we visited a city called Dnepr, and a, a pastor called, called Sergei Tsolko. Um, so he's got a, a church there of about 800 people. And every time when Johnny comes, he takes out like the best 
for Um Johnny. Like we we were the second of three groups of people that he brought with him. But every time Sergey books him into like a five star hotel or something similar, he took us to a Russian banya for like an entire day, which is like a it was a three story spa. I don't know if any of you have been in a Russian banya, but it is like culture shock. Like you will not believe. Um, it's so much fun, and we had a great time. And then also just in terms of like you know, took us out for dinner, took us out for lunch. And every time just saying like, I'm, they, sometimes they just flat out refused to let us pay. We'd, we'd actually decided because the economy is doing quite, well, it's going tough in Ukraine. We said we're going to pay everything for ourselves, but they just refused and, and, and blessed us. And I felt so guilty because I'm supposed to be on a mission trip and we're like bawling um, in Ukraine. Um, but there was, there was a lesson in that. And also in the, in the way that they, that they received us for ministry. So, when, we, when we, um, we got to his church, he called together all of his leaders. And sometimes pastors are a little bit skeptical about who they let minister in their churches. And rightfully so, right? Because nowadays you've got all these teachings and things going around. So you want to know that it's, that it's solid. But because we were with him, Johnny, he, just, he called his, um, his leaders together and gave us an absolute open, open floor. And pastors see us from our Stellenbosch congregation could minister um, to them that night, and there was just such a hunger and, and, and a desire for God. Um, people were so responsive, and afterwards, many of them did respond to the Word, and you could see the Holy Spirit really ministering to them and touching them. And then after that, we, we had dinner together um, with some of the church members that cooked dinner for us, um, and at the end of the night, we, we were all sitting around the table, and Pastor Sergey, he doesn't speak um, English, so that's also fun traveling with people who don't speak English, but there's like, there was such a love between us. Um, but he just stops, and through an interpreter, he just says, you know, Johnny, years ago when I started this church, you organized that a church in, in South Africa provide me with $100 a month so that I could feed my family while I was doing the ministry. And I will always be thankful for that. And I, I can't really explain what, what I experienced that night, but I just knew that and all of us spoke about it afterwards, that we were witnessing legacy. 26 years of sowing into, um, into a ministry, and, and, and there was something so special that kind of just went above the natural. You know, we were sitting there, and we were just like, I was just like, Lord, I want this. Like, I want this. Like, teach me your word. Show me, you know, your, your truth. Help me to believe it in the way that I would also live my life so that I can establish something like this. Um, and afterwards, we actually spoke about it. We, we, we said, you know, I believe part of the reason why his church is so blessed and, and sees the favor of God, and I mean, just in terms, financially, they're doing very well in a, a place which economically is doing very badly. Um, they're growing. They've got such a family culture, and I, I believe part of that is because they, they get this thing of honor right, honoring men of God, honoring their leaders. They, they love their pastor. They're like... And, you know, I spoke about, about it a while back in, in Randburg, and I'm not going to go into detail, but it's crazy for me that nowadays, you know, people are sometimes skeptical of something like honor because there's so many people going around claiming to be something great but actually abusing their authority. But just because there's abuse of a principle doesn't mean it's not true, right? There's, there's still proper use of that, and I believe um, that they get it right, and that's part of why they experience God's favor, not out of a place of wanting just God's blessing, um, but out of a place of thankfulness. And I came back and I was like, Lord, 
I want to understand that. Like, I want to understand your word in that way and, and live in a way so that I can experience your blessing like that, know you more and understand, like have a relationship with you um, on that level. And um, I read a scripture when I got back which, which talks about this. It's the parable of the sower in, in Matthew 13. So if you've got your Bibles with you, please turn with me um, to Matthew 13. I think Marcus also typed it out. Thanks, Marcus. Um, or you can read it on the board. So it says, On the same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea, and great multitudes were gathered together to him, so that he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. But others fell among good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You know, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he had already started his ministry. He was teaching and preaching um, and healing and, and doing miracles in, in, in Israel in Galilee. And um, in this crowd that, that had gathered that day, there were probably a few different types of people. There were probably, well, we know there were people who, who hated Jesus. There were people who were listening to what he was saying and thought that it, that it was blasphemy. And, you know, they thought he was a heretic. And not only that, but he, he threatened their power as kind of the religious institutions of the day. And they actually wanted to kill him. And then you had people who were there who loved Jesus, who maybe were healed by him or had a family relative or someone close to them um, healed by him, who had seen his power, who had seen his goodness and, and were hungry to just follow him and learn from him and get to know him. And there were also probably people who, um, who were indifferent, who maybe had heard the commotion or heard about this teacher and were just kind of checking, checking it out. And he gets all these people come to him and he gets them in kind of this, this natural amphitheater to sit down and, and now he's got this opportunity to speak to them, to teach them, to, you know, in the, in the verse prior to this, the Pharisees asked him for a sign to, if he wanted to show them some sign that, that, that he, you know, was the Messiah, that he was God. But, but what does he choose to do? He chooses to tell them the story. And it's kind of like a vague story, right? Without the clear-cut understanding or the, like a very clear-cut message. And that amazes me because, you know, um, I think today we've become so used to and we actually value clear teaching, which is not a bad thing. We love things like the five steps to a better life, right? Or the seven steps to a great prayer life or how to find your wife in three steps, you know, like <laughs> those ones are, are especially popular. But when Jesus taught... He really didn't teach like that. Instead, he, he tells this parable, which isn't obvious um, from the surface. It actually invites you in to come and to contemplate and to meditate and to think about it and to live yourself into the story. And when you do that, then you start to, do, to see um, you know, different things about yourself. And, and, and in my experience, when I've read, in, and read through parables at different times in my life, seen different things um, in them. And they start to, to kind of change you. And the other thing is, it, it tells, 
The other thing probably is that parables also kind of amplified the position of people's hearts because you had all these people in the crowd who had different positions in their hearts toward Jesus. And maybe if you thought that Jesus was a heretic and you came and you sat down and you were expecting him to show you some sign or or to give you some evidence that he was the Messiah because he had to prove it to you. And he starts telling you this vague story which you don't really understand. Maybe it would have for you confirmed your bias and you would have been like, oh, okay, well, who is this? Why did I come out here? Like, this doesn't make sense. Like, this guy is, you know, a heretic. It's like, it's like they say. But if, if you believe that he was the Messiah, and he says something like, well, the kingdom of heaven is like this and this, and here's a story, and you go and you sit and you contemplate that, it's going to have a very, very different effect. And in this case, we actually have Jesus explaining the parable to us, right? Because his disciples come to him, And they ask him, Lord, explain this parable to us. And it turns out being a parable exactly about that, about our heart's position and how we come to receive the word of God. So let's read together what Jesus um, says this parable means from verse 18. Therefore hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom. Okay, so maybe just small diversion. Just um, so he says that the seed is, is... is to be related to the word of the kingdom. And, you know, I, there's a guy called Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, and I really like what he says about, about parables. He says that parables are not just like little moral cl- snippets, which you can take by themselves, and each one kind of has a takeaway, and then you can learn a lesson, you can live your life in a better way. They were all connected to the central message of Jesus, which was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was on earth to bring the kingdom of heaven on to earth, right? And he was saying that there is a new reality. There is a new way that things are going to be, and you need to repent and have your mind renewed so that you can understand this. Because not only am I telling you about this, you've got the opportunity to partner with me in it to bring restoration in the earth. It's like he didn't just come to forgive our sins so that we can wait out life and go to heaven one day, right? Heaven is going to come to earth, okay? And we're the agents. And, um, and you know, that, that's what a lot of these parables revolve around, was his message of the kingdom of heaven is coming on earth. So he says, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. So as, this parable, as the sower is walking and he's sowing on his field, some of it falls by the side and never actually enters into the ground. And he says, that is when um, the word doesn't enter into, into our lives, into our hearts, and it just... It just gets snatched away. It just gets removed. And I always thought that this referred um, to salvation, to people who hear the gospel, but they don't believe it. Um, and I, I believe it does. I, I think that the gospel is the primary and salvation is, is the primary message in the gospel. But I was just convicted recently that maybe it's not just the gospel. But I had to kind of ask myself the question, how many times do I come to church or go to small group or even go to the Word, and my heart is not in a position to actually receive it. And the sermon or the message or what I read kind of passes in the one year and out the other one without it actually entering into my heart and, and, and being able to change me. And he says, the second group of people, but he received the seed on stony places. This is he who hears the Word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a little while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. 
So he says the second group are those who receive the word, and immediately there's joy and commotion and excitement, and there's even signs. This little plant springs up, um, you know, almost immediately from the word. But the word never goes in and takes deep root in our lives, and it doesn't actually become a part of who we are. And I, I think, you know, my opinion is that our generation is particularly at danger of this. Because for us, it's become so easy to kind of have a comfortable Christianity that, that is lived in isolation where we can watch sermons anytime we want. We, can, we don't have to go to church anymore. We can just watch it on, on, on a Sunday. We can, go, we can do all the things in Christian culture, buy Christian books and, and go to Christian conferences without the Word ever actually going deep into, into our hearts. And, and that's something we have to watch out for. And also, we need to make sure that the whole gospel takes root in our hearts because, I mean, again, you know, not to knock anybody, but I hear a lot of um, encouraging, which is great. We need encouragement, and that's awesome, and motivating sermons preached, but we also need to understand, we need to understand the full gospel, which includes, like, uncomfortable doctrines like suffering, right, or having a heart for the lost to the point, like in Romans 9, where Paul says, I myself wish that I were accursed for my countrymen, the Jews, and I read that and I'm like, Lord, to be honest, this is not in my framework. You know, like this is a hard doctrine for me to understand, but it's there and I need to deal with it. And the thing is, any faith will get tested. The Bible makes that very clear. It actually, you know, it tells us that faith gets refined through testing. And the problem is when we do not understand um, a doctrine like suffering and something like that comes along and it's outside our, our frame of reference, lots of people go like, well, this is not what I signed up for. No one told me this is going to happen. You know, and, and then they fall away. The third group, he says, now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. So he says, the third group are those where the seed falls, it starts growing, but it's not the only thing that's growing in that place. There are other things that are growing there that are competing for resources. So water is scarcer, sun is is scarcer, and sometimes those things grow up faster than the word, and they kind of entangle it and and, and make it unfruitful. And And he mentions two things. He says, the cares of the world. So the things that either divert us, keep us away from doing the will of God because we're somewhere else, in some other pursuit, whether that be business or family or sport or whatever, that keeps us from doing the will of God or distracts us, even if we are in the right place, even if we're sitting in church, distracts our minds and puts it on something else so that our hearts and our emotions are not there. And then the second thing that he mentions is the deceitfulness of riches. Note he doesn't say riches themselves, but the deceitfulness of it. And while I was um, preparing for the sermon, I read a commentary where the commentator says, you know, prosperity is just as dangerous as persecution to our faith. The only difference is it's silent. When I was in Ukraine this year, I met a man who was in the Russian army, and they took him aside one day, and they put a gun to his head, and they said, deny Jesus, or I'm going to shoot you, or we're going to shoot you. And in a case like that, it's very obvious. You've got a choice. And your choice is going to have direct and immediate consequences, and everyone's going to know about it. You know, and praise God, he didn't deny Jesus, and they didn't shoot him. So that's awesome. Um, But something like prosperity is a lot more subtle. Because no one can see when our 
hearts start changing their source of security or identity or stability from God to, the thing, to, to, to riches or, or our bank balance or the, or the things of the world. And it's going to reflect in our bank balance. It's going to reflect in how we spend our time. But it's not going to be that obvious. And it's a lot easier even for ourselves to justify. But then he says the last group. But he who received the seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. And you know, I, when I used to read this scripture, um, so my, like I need to oftentimes renew my mind because I focus a lot of the time on, on the negative. I focus on the abstinence. So I need to abstain from X, Y, and Z, and I kind of stop there. But the whole reason why Jesus wants us to abstain from certain things is so that we can attain something else, right? There's a reason why we need to put our hearts in that position so that we can receive the seed and so that it can bear fruit in our lives. And what does that look like? Later in the scripture, we get what I think is like a glimpse of it where it talks about what happens when a man or a woman discovers the kingdom of God. So I just want to read that. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And when I read that, I don't hear like, you know, these people were like, there's treasure in this field. It's more than I can ever imagine, but it's buried in it's a lot of effort. I'm not going to go dig. That's not really the attitude that they have, you know. They're like, I'm going to do whatever I can to secure this because I understand how valuable this is. And I really believe that that is also how God wants us to view the kingdom of heaven. Not burdensome, not, you know, um, just out of a place of striving, but really out of a place of understanding its value. And I just maybe want to share one story of where God has helped me to see the value of the kingdom um, in a new light, in a sense, one short story, and then also how he's helped change my heart to, to be better ground. So me and my wife met at university. She was third year, and I was fifth year at that time, and she was staying with a friend of mine um, in a flat, and we met at church, and then we became friends, and we got along really well for a year, and, but then after a year, she was headed to Rhodes University to do a master's degree there, and even though we'd been really good friends, we'd never, had, like, there wasn't really much romantic between us, so it was kind of like, well, okay, don't know when I'm going to see you again, you know, that type of thing, and um, by the grace of God, before she went away, we went on a road trip together in that last holiday with the other friend of mine to KwaZulu Natal, and on that road trip, I... Um, I realized that I really like her, so uh, I told her that, and uh, asked her out, and she agreed, praise the Lord, um, and we started dating, right? And um, now we had this problem, because we went home, and we're dating, but she's still headed to Rose University, so we pray about this, and we're like, Lord, well, you know the situation, we would really love to get to know each other better, but um, we just give it to you. And this opportunity comes up about a master's degree in Belgium that you could do application for, but she would have to get a full scholarship. There was one available, but it wasn't sure. So she decides to go for it. Takes a massive risk on me. Thank you. I hope it's working out. 
<laughs> she comes to Stellenbosch one day, and she does application for this master's degree. In the same day, she gets a job um, for seven months while she's going to be in Stellenbosch and a place to stay, which was a miracle. And she applies for this, and she goes back, and she cancels her, her degree at, or her application to Rhodes. Okay. Praise the Lord, she gets the master's degree. Um, so we've got seven months to get to know each other. And in that seven months, at about month four, I realize that this is my wife. Um, and God shows it to me in a few actually very clear ways, way more clear than I expected him to, to be honest. Um, and I was excited about that, and I felt the freedom and actually the necessity to get engaged before she goes to Belgium. So we get engaged after six months, and then she goes away for a year and a half. And our time in Belgium, <laughs> our time in Belgium was probably um, one of the toughest times. I'm sure the toughest time Nanya has ever been through. One of the toughest times in my life, not because of the long distance, but because like three days after she arrives, um, she really str- struggles to sleep. And I'm not talking like four hours a night. I'm talking like one hour a night, and it continues for like sorry a year and a half. And I remember the conversations we used to have in that time. I used to phone her, and um, the questions were often the same. Did you sleep last night? (laughs) And the answer was usually no, and then there would be tears. Um, And she really, I mean, you know, she's got her her own story around this. I can't even imagine how hard it was for her. But... um, but y'all, for for me, I can I can I can only share from my perspective. For me, it was it was also extremely challenging because I'm in South Africa. I've got no idea how to handle this, right? How do you how do you how do you how do you make it better um, as a fiance? How do you how do you help um, your future wife who's really really struggling just to cope with the basic things um, in life? And um, I, I praise God because in that time we really had some some moments of respite. Um, God gave us opportunities for me to go over there, um, for her to come here, even though she really wasn't supposed to with her master's degree come back to her home country. We could do that. And he sent amazing people across our path who really taught us so much about family and about love. Um, and it's re- that, that period has actually shaped us so much. Like it was really tough. Uh, we wouldn't want it over again. Um, but at the same time, God was doing work um, in our hearts. And um, then after a year and a half, she comes back to South Africa. We start, we plan the final bit of the wedding and we get married. And now we're living here in Joburg. We move up to Joburg and we're married and still she struggles to sleep. So we would go to bed at night and many nights I would fall asleep and she would just lie next to me awake, you know. And we tried lots of things. We, 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 she went to Christian psychologist. She went to a psychiatrist and some, many things we tried helped for a bit and then it stopped helping and it was really just kind of this continuous um, struggle. And for me as a, as, as a husband, I mean, for her, it, again, you know, extremely tough. For me as a husband, I think I just really struggled in that time to know what to do. Um, because you don't. You don't know what to do when nothing is helping. When, when, when you're praying and, and, you're, and, and you're going on and, and, and nothing is helping, you feel, you feel inadequate. Um, and so about halfway through our first year, she had to go back to Belgium to uh, hand in her master's degree and to do her final oral um, at the university. And I was planning to go with her, but I didn't, unfortunately, have money to do so. So um, we decided it would be better for, uh, for me to stay. And at that time I was praying, I was like, Lord, it'll be really cool to go, but not re- I can't really justify why it's necessary, you know, like, it'd just be nice. 
and a, f a friend phones me and we chat and he's like, oh, yeah, Nanya's, because she was already there actually, and Nanya's in Belgium, are you going to go visit her? And I'm like, no, I don't have money. And he's like, oh, okay. And then like two days later, he phones me back and he's like, well, I'll buy you a ticket if you can get a visa, which was awesome. So I get a visa within two days, which was also cool. And then I go. And um, we've got some time there between uh, when she has to, uh, between when I arrive and when she has to do her final oral. And I remember planning that holiday, um, or rather like not really having time to plan that holiday. But for me, holidays have always been like, you, sp you know, you spend a lot of money. In this case, a friend of mine is spending a lot of money to get me there. So I wanted to be something special, you know, and I'm trying to, to do some plans um, around that. But I had, didn't really have all that time. So we decide we're going we're gonna, to uh, rent a car in Belgium and drive down to Nice in France. Um, we had four days, and it was a 13-hour drive, and that should have been the first red flag for me. But we, we decided to continue. So we rent this car in Nice, and now we're driving on the highways in France. And the first day, we drive 13 hours. 75% of our day is spent on a French highway, which is not as so sightseeingly beautiful or whatever as you would expect. And I'm like, I'm look, before this, I'd looked at friends who had been on holiday to France and were bowling in like Italy or wherever, and I'm like, I'm feeling like, Flip, I messed this one up like royally. Like my friends are having these amazing holidays and we're like on this highway in France. And except for that, we hit the French toll gates, which I didn't even know exist, but basically bankrupt us. And <laughs> I think the one night we, we treated ourselves to like a pack of ravioli, which we made um, in a kettle. <laughs> um, but the rest of the time we ate goat's cheese and baguettes because that's what we could afford. And we're driving down, and the first night we, we go and we sleep in, um, in Provence, in an Airbnb there. And uh, the next morning I wake up, and I go and speak to the Lord. And I'm like, Lord, I really messed this one up. Like, I think I heard wrong, you know, because this is, this is like, I mean, I could try to tell myself this is going well. but <laughs> And I think except for that, just that period where we were in our marriage, I wouldn't say that the sleep put strain on our marriage, but just again, you know, I think... I had a lot of fears, um, also around the fact of whether I would actually be able to, to handle it and be able to be a good husband to her in that time. And um, I remember spending time with the Lord and the Lord just dropping this um, sentence into, into my heart. And the sentence was, pour vous le coeur. Now, I don't speak a word of French, okay? I speak zero French. I speak one word, that's we, oh. okay, which I think means Yes. But that's it. Now I'm thinking like, am I making this up? You know, like sometimes when you're praying and you feel a scripture and you page there and it's like, and the Amalekites slew the, and you're like, no. <laughs> Obviously I'm making this up, you know, or I hope I am. Like, <laughs> because that's not a very encouraging scripture. But So I'm, I'm worried about that. But so what I do is I, and I mean, I, I think that morning I was feeling a bit down. So I, I type it in on Google Translate, and the English translation is for you, the heart. And my interpretation of that was just that God was saying to me that he wants to share his heart with me. In a, in a way which is, I couldn't have conjured up myself. And, um, you know, an epic holiday would have been great. I'm sure for Nanya it would have been really fun. But, like, what I experienced just through that thing that God did, no amount of, of money can buy, right? No amount of great holiday 
can give me, just his affirmation of me as a son and of a husband, and him in a sense saying that you're going to be okay, and I love you, and I want to share my heart with you, and I want to teach you, teach you my heart. And, um, you know, praise God, Nanya is sleeping a lot better. Um, there's another testimony around that that we have shared in church. Um, we'd be happy to share with anyone who wants to hear it. Um, but through experiences like this, and, you know, it's, it's just one. I've, there are more. God has really started changing my heart. And he started teaching me what the value of the kingdom is. And that is that we can be called children of God, sons of God. And in the story, we've got the parable of the sower who sows a seed and it falls into the ground and dies and it bears fruit. And there's another uh, place in John where Jesus says that any grain of wheat has to fall into the ground and die so that it, that it, that it can bear fruit. But Jesus is, is the, and I believe that speaks about us, that we need to die to ourselves so that we can be, bear the fruit of the kingdom. But Jesus is the ultimate example of that because he was the seed sown by the Father who came to earth, who died, who sacrificed himself on the cross so that we can be reconciled to the Father, so that we can be accepted by him and be agents of change in his kingdom, be called children of God and receive all of the blessings of Christ, which includes an intimate relationship with the Father, which we cannot earn and no amount of our work is going gonna, is gonna to make him love us more or less, but which we have the gift of receiving because of Jesus. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.